Matthew chapter 28, verse 16 says, verse 16 on down says, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for this wonderful time. Holy Spirit, be with us. Be with me as I deliver your word to your people. Give us a grand picture of church government, of congregationalism, and also of our role in the local church. Thank you for sending your son, Jesus Christ, to die for our sins, to rise on the third day. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for applying that salvation and redemption to each and every one of us. In Christ's name we all pray. Amen. <clears throat> well, it's uh, like I said, it's good to be with you on this semi-chilly Wednesday. It's uh, getting more and more colder, which is great. But this evening, we want to continue our study of church government. And I hope last week when we spoke about church government, that was of some use to you. I pray that you guys learned what it meant to have some type of church government, the importance of church government, and your role in that system of your local church's government. But this, this evening, I want to begin with a short uh, hypothetical scenario, okay? Suppose you were in Germany, and you lost your passport. Oh, let's just say you, you're in Germany, and your passport expired, okay? Your passport expires. If you want to get a new passport, if you, or if you want your passport to be renewed, where would you need to go? That is correct. The U.S. Embassy. You need, you need to go to the U.S. Embassy. Now, suppose you walk into the U.S. Embassy and you tell them, whoever is at the front desk, that your passport has expired. The person at the front desk begins to look up your information and they see that you're an American citizen. Right? They print out uh, they print you out a new passport and they declare you an American citizen. Okay? Now, friends, I have a question. Did the U.S. Embassy make you a citizen? At that point, did the U.S. Embassy make you a citizen? No. The U.S. Embassy didn't make you a citizen because you were a citizen already. However, they had an authority, the, the U.S. Embassy had an authority that you as an individual, that you as a U.S. citizen did not formally have, right? They had the authority to declare you before the nations that you are an American citizen. 
You see the, the, the different type of authority that, there, that, that's, that dwells between you or that you possess and the people who work for the U.S. Embassy. Now, we can say that the U.S. Embassy represents a much higher power, right? The United States of America. And, and that's essentially what the U.S. Embassy is called to do. The U.S. Embassy... More specifically, the people who work inside the embassy are called to represent the United States of America, right? We can say that the USA has given the power over to that embassy to declare American citizens and to reject non-American citizens. The people who work at the embassy, the people inside the embassy are the ones who affirm American citizens and affirm who are not American citizens. And friends, we see this type of, of delegated power in all areas of life, do we not? From Walmart to schools to mall stores to other corporations, people who are working for a company represent the company. So if you work for Walmart you have some type of power that the person who is shopping at Walmart does not have, right? The owner has given you some type of authority, and you represent Walmart. But what about the church? We know about all these different type of organizations and all, and all these, these different type of institutions who delegate their power. You know, managers delegate their power to their employees and whatnot. But, but what about the church? Who's in charge? Who represents Christ? Now, we all would agree that Christ is in charge. Would we all agree with that? That Christ is in charge of his church. And he, and ultimately, he rules. But we have to ask, has Christ delegated his rule and authoritative power to anyone? Has Christ, who is the head of the church, delegated his power? Has, has Christ given power to other people? Some might say, well, yes, Christ has given power to other people. Christ has given the authority and power over to the Pope. You know, I mean, he is the successor of the Apostle Peter, as my Roman Catholic friends would say. So the Pope or a bishop or the priest, have, they have the power and only them. Many, as I thought and maybe you thought, think that only a pastor, a single pastor of the church is in charge. Only the pastor has authority, and only Christ has given him power and authority. He and only he has that right. Many would say that Christ has given authority over to the senior pastor as well as the elders of the church. But friends, we have to ask again, if all all of that is true, which none of it is, Where does the congregation fit in? If we say that Christ has given power to a pope or to a priest or to elders or to a single pastor of the church, 
where does the congregation fit in in this rule and power and authority? Do members of the local church have any power or authority in their local church? And that's what we want to consider tonight. Last week, we considered the importance of church government, or we can call it church polity. And we saw that church polity or church government is important because it establishes the local church. So the organizational structure of the local church establishes the local church. And remember what I said, it's that mechanism or it's that link between the universal church and the visible church or the local church, right? The difference between a group of Christians and the difference between a church is church government, is church polity. We saw that church polity guards the gospel, but also guards the people of the gospel, And we also saw that church polity is important because it protects the church's witness in the world. In our second lesson on church government, we want to start narrowing our focus a little bit. Okay, last week we I gave an apologetic on on why church polity, why church government as a whole is important. Now we want to start narrowing our focus down to congregationalism. We want to start narrowing our focus down to our type of, our form of church government, okay? And we want to examine your role as a church member. What, what is your role? What is your job description? What is your responsibility? What privilege do you have as a local church member? And this evening I have two points for us to follow. Number one, Adam's commission. And number two, Christ's fulfillment and the church's commission. So number one, Adam's commission. And number two, Christ's fulfillment and the church's commission. So let's look at the first point, Adam's commission. And tonight, I'm not going to get into particularly, and you're going to hear this in the following weeks, what you have, what power you have in the local church which would be you have the keys of the kingdom. You have the authority to bind and loose. Okay, uh, Elder John or, and Pastor John will be speaking on that. But what I want to do tonight is I want to give you a, a biblical theology okay, of your role in the local church. Okay, And if you know anything about biblical theology, biblical theology is basically the overall story of the Bible. Right From Genesis to Revelation, what's the main point of the Bible? So tonight, we'll be giving, I'll be giving you a biblical theology of your role as a local church member. And we have to start in Genesis. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heaven, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. We read in the Bible's opening chapter that God creates man in his image, as well as woman. We see that God creates the animals. However, humans are uniquely made. 
designed to represent or give witness to God, since they are built in God's image. And that's what it means to be made in the image of God. We represent or we give witness to God. Okay? Adam was made to represent God. Adam was called a son of God. So it's only fair to say that God's son was to image his father. Just as fathers want their son to image them, God wanted his son, Adam, to image him, to bear his witness, right? God places Adam in a garden, and he gives Adam a job, okay? He, he installs Adam to an office and gives him the task to be fruitful and multiply, to fill the earth and, sub, and to subdue it, and to have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth, as Genesis 1.28 says. But anytime we come to a passage like this, or anytime we read the Bible, as Pastor says, we have to ask questions, right? So what exactly does ruling, subduing, and feeling involve? What, is, what does that mean? God, God has given Adam a job to subdue, to rule, and to fill, but what, what exactly does that mean? What does it all look like? Let's turn to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2, verse 15 through 19. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat of it. For in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens, and brought them to the man to see what he would call him. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. So the job that Adam was called to do was to work and keep watch over the garden, as we see in verse 15. He must name animals, as we see in verse 19. And he must only eat from certain trees, as he, we see in verses 16 and 17. So God has placed Adam in the Garden of Eden to cultivate it, to make it flourish for others. He must be fruitful, and he must multiply and fill the earth with children, while, all while pushing back the Garden's borders, little by little, until it covers the whole earth. And since God walks in the garden frequently, the garden is a holy space, right? And since the garden was a holy space, then it must be guarded from intruders. That's what it means to guard or protect something. You guard it from outsiders, right? You guard it from intruders, people who are not supposed to be there. Adam must protect the garden, the garden, which was God's holy dwelling place, that holy place, that, that first temple. He must also name what belongs inside the garden, like dogs and horses. 
but also what belongs outside the, the garden, like heretics and lying serpents. In short, Adam exists to enjoy his father's glory and honor by representing him before all the earth and keeping his dwelling place holy and pure. And as we read our Bibles, this is exactly what we see in Numbers and Leviticus. The priests were commanded by God to work and watch over the tabernacle and temple, keeping it consecrated to the Lord. Priests were also charged with naming things as clean and unclean. Doesn't that sound familiar? It sounds like the very same thing that Adam was commanded to do. And since God dwelled in the tabernacle and temple, the priests were commissioned to keep it holy and to keep it pure and not allow unclean things inside the temple or tabernacle. The Israel's priests were given the same job assignment as Adam. Therefore, I think it's only right to say that Adam was not only a king, but also a priest. Right? I mean, if Adam is given the same job assignment as Israel's priest, then it's only fair to say that Adam was a priest king. So let's quickly summarize the kind of rule that, that God intended for Adam as a priest king. And, and this right here, um, if you're taking notes, take special note of this, because we're going to come back to this. <clears throat> and, there, and this priestly rule that, that Adam was assigned to is, is outlined by three aspects. Number one, there's the structural aspect. The structural aspect. And that aspect includes... Image, identification, and representation. So there's the structural aspect of image. And if you want to just write one of these down, that's fine. Identification and representation. Meaning, being created in God's image, Adam was identified with God. Right? He bore God's witness. His rule was representative. He represented God before all the world. Adam was created to be this kind of mediating king. So when people saw Adam, they should see God. There's the outward aspect. The outward aspect, which is witnessing, expanding, and cultivating. So there is the outward aspect of witnessing, expanding, and cultivating, meaning this, being identified with God as a mediating king, Adam was to spread the name and glory of God to the ends of the earth. That's what it means to witness and to expand the borders of the Garden of Eden, to expand God's holy presence, his holy dwelling. He was to expand that to the ends of the earth. Adam was to work the garden Adam was to be fruitful and multiply and to fill the earth with God's glory and children. And number three, there's the inward aspect. There's the inward aspect of guarding, protecting, and consecrating. The inward aspect of guarding, protecting, and consecrating. Meaning, being identified with God, and, and mind you, this is what all, all of this, what all of this means is how someone looks. When, when someone looks at you, 
you should be so identified with God. And this is what it looks like. Being identified with God, Adam was to watch over the garden. Adam was to watch over God's holy dwelling place. Being identified with God means to watch over the garden. And it was to obey God's law, but also teach it to others. That, that's the thing about Adam. He didn't teach God's law to Eve. And Eve was deceived because Adam didn't do his duty in teaching Eve. And also Adam was to name what belonged in the garden and what didn't belong in the garden. However, did Adam succeed in all of that? No. Adam failed in all of that. Adam failed in his job. He failed in his job description as priest king. So God said, okay, well, let's move on to someone else. Noah. Noah gets the office of priest king. And if you read the story of Noah, it's striking how similar he is to Adam. You can even say that Noah is an Adam-like figure. I mean, think about, let's just think about one thing. Where does Noah sin? In a garden of vines. Where does Adam sin? In a garden. Is, is Noah covered? Yes, Noah is covered. It was Adam covered? Adam was covered. So we can see the connection there. However, Noah failed in his office, right? So God said, okay, let's move on to Abraham. So we move on to Abraham. But what God commands to Abraham, or what God commands to Adam, he promises to Abraham. What God commands to Adam, to, to, to be a witness to fill the earth and subdue it, to watch over the garden in the, in the holy temple of God. He promises to Abraham. He would ensure that Abraham, the king, would not only have biological children. Remember, Adam was supposed to fill the earth and subdue it. And the way he would do that is by having children. However, Abraham was promised children as well. Mind you, not just biological children. Because everyone that comes from Adam are biological children. What was promised to Abraham was spiritual children. Genesis seventeen sixteen. I will bless her. And moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her and she shall become nations. Kings of peoples shall come from her. So he promises Abraham a seed. Right. A promised seed that's to come that will be that will be a blessing. That shall become nations and and kings of people shall come from that one seed. Right. He ensured Abraham, the priest, would consecrate himself and his people to the way of the Lord. Genesis 18, 18 and 19, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what was promised to him. So it appears that God would fulfill his kingly and priestly purposes 
for, a, for humanity through Abraham. That God would fulfill his kingly and priestly purposes for humanity through Abraham. And we can say that what God commands for all people will be fulfilled through his special people. God's redeemed line will fulfill his creation purposes. You guys, let's just take a moment. Do you guys understand that? That right now you are fulfilling God's creation purposes? Because you are a new creation in Christ. And right now all of things are being put under the subjection of Christ's feet. All things are being made new. And what are the one thing, what's the one thing that needs to be made new first? Humanity. You are being made new. Right now, we are fulfilling God's original creation purposes. As we like to say, the end will be better than the beginning. So as we move along through the rest of the Old Testament, who does God choose next? Israel. God chooses Israel out of all the nations. And God's, God calls Israel to be his people. And if we want to put a label on Israel, a theological label on Israel, we can say that Israel is corporate Adam. Israel is corporate Adam. They were to bring about the promises made to Abraham. However, like Adam, Israel failed to fulfill the mandate of their office as priest kings. Israel was to be a people who displayed the image of God. However, they displayed their own sinfulness and depravity. Israel was to be God's people of heaven on earth. However, what they did was they didn't show the nations what true religion looks like. As, what, as that's what they were intended to do. But they showed their disobedience and their self-confidence in themselves rather than God. Israel failed to protect their own garden, the temples and the tabernacles of God's dwelling from temptations and false worship. They, they were not God's witnesses before the nations, and Israel therefore allowed people who were clean to live with people who were unclean. They allowed pure to mix with impure and holy to mix with unholy. One writer said Israel progressively takes forms which placed it at a distance from the creation mandate, the Abrahamic promise, purpose, and the Mosaic ideal. Israel was, was supposed to be that, that special son of God. They were supposed to be a people who, will, who would expand God's name to the ends of the earth. They were, to, they were supposed to show the nations around them what true religion looks like, and who the one true God is. However, we know what happens. Israel fails. So God's special people failed to deliver what was assigned to them. However, just like in the garden, when God is giving curses upon the serpent and Adam and Eve, there's a promise there, right? And just as There's a promise in Genesis 3.15. God promises a solution. That a new eternal covenant will come forth that will restore Israel's and Adam's office of priest king. 
That, that there will be a, a new covenant that will be established, not like the one of old. A better covenant, an everlasting, eternal covenant. And we read in Ezekiel 36, God promises such covenant. And he says, and I will, and you just read this, listen, listen here, and I will multiply people of you, on you, the whole house of Israel, all of it. The cities shall be inhabited and the waste places rebuilt. I will multiply you, man and beast, and they shall multiply and be fruitful. That sounds familiar. That sounds like the garden. And I will multiply you and man and beast, and I will cause you to be inhabited as in your former times, and will do more good to you than ever before. Then you will know that I am the Lord. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act. So don't get it twisted. It's not for your sake that I'm about to do these things, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations and which you have profaned among them and the nations will know that I am the Lord declares the Lord God when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes a little bit more I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness And from all your idols, I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and I will give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and to be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God. In these verses, God himself promises to fulfill the commands he gave to Adam, but also intends to restore the priestly rule of his people. It's sort of like God said, well, we tried Adam, and we tried Noah. Israel failed. Well, then I'm going to become a man myself, and I'm going to fulfill my promises and, my, and what I have commanded God will fulfill his purposes. In spite of Israel and Adam's failure to be priest kings, failure to fulfill the creation mandate, God's promises will not fail. The promises God made to Abraham of a, of a special people and of a special seed will be fulfilled. Enter Jesus Christ. Which leads to our second point, Christ's fulfillment and the church's commission Christ's fulfillment and the church's mission following israel's demise and judgment jesus enters the scene and brings forth that new covenant that was promised in the old christ fulfilled the office of priest that adam failed at he's that faithful son that israel was not The New Testament declares Jesus to be a new Adam, the offspring of Abraham, the true Israel, 
and the son of David who will rule over God's new covenant people, the church. In other words, where Adam failed at, Christ succeeded. Who Israel was unfaithful to, Christ was obedient. Paul calls Jesus the last Adam in 1 Corinthians 15.45. And just as Adam was the head of all humanity, Christ is the head of a new humanity. Christ as Christ came, as G.K. Bill says, to subdue and rule, to multiply and create and to fill, and to rest in the way that God originally designed that humanity should have done in the first place. He did what Adam was supposed to do, right? In his life, Jesus completed the works of the law, walking perfect harmony and perfect submission to the Father. In his atoning death, Jesus produced not children of the flesh, but offspring of the promise, because, because that one righteous act of Christ, he will bring forth seeds who will reign in life, as Romans 5.17 says. And in his resurrection, Jesus became the first fruits of a new royal harvest of life. Christ is that promised seed of Abraham. And all those who are in union with Christ, all those who place their faith in him and him alone, and if you have done that, friends, you are children of the promise. But how does... All of this apply to church government. I mean, it's great to hear about this, this grand story of, of failure, and then Christ comes and he succeeds. But what does Christ's redemptive work, how does his redemptive work apply to church government? More so, how does Christ's redemptive work say anything about me having any type of authority or power in the church. And to that, I would say Christ's redemptive work has everything to do with church government. And it has everything to do with the power and rule and authority that you have as a local member of a church. It has everything to do with it. Turn to Matthew 3. Matthew chapter 3. What we have here is the story of Christ's baptism, verses 13 down to 17. It says this, Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now For thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water. And behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And here's what we want to pay attention to. Verse 17. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Now, other than that being a wonderful uh, verse for justification by faith alone in Christ alone, what we see here is, in verse 17 in particular, heaven 
affirming Christ. Do you guys see that? The heavens open up, and a voice from heaven says, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. So we have heaven affirming Christ. That this one right here is one who I am well pleased with. The Father is affirming that the Son... He's affirming to the Son, or before the world, I might add, he's affirming before the world that this person, Jesus Christ, I am well pleased with. That, that he is the perfect image of who I am. He does all the things that I have commanded. He bears witness to my name perfectly. So we can say that Jesus represents heaven on earth. Jesus, write, write that down, Jesus represented heaven on earth. And this is all going to make sense in a little bit, but Jesus represents heaven on earth. But that's great. Jesus represents heaven on earth. But what about me? We still haven't answered the question, what does this have to do with church government and, and my authority as a local church member? Turn to Matthew chapter 11, verse 27. Matthew 11, verse 27, which says, All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and here it is, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. And anyone whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Who does the Son choose to reveal himself to? Everyone in the world? No, only a special people, right? Only a particular people. The Son reveals himself to the people of the church. So the church, since it's united by faith to Christ represents Christ here on heaven uh, uh, here on earth the, the church or we can say the church represents heaven here on earth since we have been united to Christ by faith and since Christ only reveals himself to the people of the church then we represent heaven on earth just as Adam represented God on earth just as Israel represented the one true God here on earth, we, the church, represent heaven. We represent God on earth. Now, I know that's still, that's far-fetched, right? That, that's still sort of far-fetched. That has, there, there, there really, there, there is some connection, but, but not really. 2 Timothy 2.12 says, If we endure we will also reign with him. So I'm trying to put a connection here on how our authority is Christ's authority. Christ calls his people to reign with him, to be co-heirs with him, as Romans 8.17 says. When you reign with someone, when you are co-heir with someone, what does that mean? That you share something with someone. You're sharing something with someone, does it not? 
All of that means this. The church will reign with Christ because it has been united to Christ. And since we are united to Christ, we share in Christ's rule and authority. Let me say that one more time because I didn't hear enough amens. The church will reign with Christ because it has been united to Christ. And since we are united to Christ, we share the privilege, the honor that no one in this world shares. Not the president, not governors, not mayors, not, not people who teach at Ivy League schools. We share in Christ's authority and rule. Just as Adam played the role of every man and fed her ahead, meaning all humanity received, received the commission that was given to him, so Christ plays the role and is the federal head of a new humanity. We take on Christ-likeness. And we take on Christ's authority and rule. Just as Adam occupied the office of priest-king, just as Israel, who were God's people, occupied the office of priest-king, Christ, who is the true priest-king, and every believer who is united to him by faith, all, all, all believers who have come under the submission and joined the local church occupies the office of priest-king. What does that mean? That means you are a priest-king. Just as Adam of old, just as Israel of old, the church is now or occupies that office of priest-king. Just as the church puts on Christ's righteousness, so the church puts on Christ's priestly vocation, his kingly priestly vocation. Church member, this is our authority and work. You have been called to an office. Small O, but yet still an office. Friends, you occupy the office of priest-king. And those three aspects that outline Adam's office, they outline yours as well. Remember those three aspects that outline Adam's office? The structural aspect of imaging, identifying, and representing Christ. And the, the outward aspect of witnessing, expanding, and cultivating Christ's kingdom. And also the inward aspect of guarding and protecting and consecrating Christ's temple. All of that is yours. But now, you do it in a church context. Now, you have the third member of the Godhead living within you. And you will not fail. Christians identify themselves through baptism and the Lord's Supper. That's why we ident- that's, that's how we identify to the world that we have been united to Christ by faith. Christians witness and cultivate the kingdom life through evangelism and pursuing good deeds. And we guard and protect the kingdom life by seeking holiness in our own lives, in the lives and also in the lives of fellow saints. The church, as members of the new covenant, through their union with Christ, are placed into Christ's office of priest-king here on earth. This is what it means to be a citizen of Christ's kingdom and to reign with Christ. So what does that mean, ultimately? That means that church member, if you are here, you're not just a church member. That's what that means. That means that you are not just a church goer, a church attender, a church hopper. You're not, all, you're not that. 
you, you have a, you have a certain, God has given you a particular duty and role inside his church. You are called to an office. You take on the role of priest king. And you have received your affirmation from heaven. Because Christ received his affirmation from heaven. And you have been united to Christ by faith. Church member, you have been hired by God to fulfill the same Adamic office of priest king. The same office of priest king that Israel once held. You have that office. Just like Adam of Israel who were to image the God who created him, created them, and save them, we are to do that. We are to obey his law and keep ourselves holy and pure and to be light in a dark world. Just as Adam and Israel were to expand and cultivate the Garden of Eden and Israel as a whole to the ends of the earth, we expand now Christ's kingdom. You guys, under, do you guys get the link? Do you guys understand that? Just as Adam was to expand the Garden of Eden, now we expand Christ's kingdom to the ends of the earth. Just as Adam was to expand God's glory, to expand his holy dwelling to the ends of the earth, we, the church, expand God's glory and kingdom and the knowledge of who he is to the ends of the earth. We are to be Christ's witnesses. Just as Adam was to be a witness to all the earth, just as Israel was to be witnesses to all these pagan nations, we are to be witnesses in this world And we are to bear the name of Christ in a world that's so hostile toward him. And just how Adam was to guard and protect the garden from unclean things. And just as Israel was to keep the temple pure and not mix clean with unclean things. We are to guard God's special people and his church. We are to guard the gospel Church member, you are to guard the gospel. But also look to the person next to you or in back of you or in front of you. You are to guard the gospel people. You are not to allow false gospels to enter their mind. And you are not allow them to associate themselves with heretics. That's the highest form of love one can ever show. Friends, Christ has given you that a job assignment. Christ has given you that privilege, that responsibility. In short, you have an enormous amount of authority. If you thought that you had no authority, think again. Because Christ has given you an enormous amount of authority. And notice how Christ doesn't give this authority only, and he doesn't give this office of priest king only to the pope. Notice how he doesn't give it to seminary professors. Notice how he doesn't give it to Bible college students. Notice how Christ doesn't give this authority over to a single pastor or to a presbytery or to a group of elders or to a bishop or to a priest or to someone who thinks they know something about theology. He gives it to the whole church. Every believer in Christ. In closing, church member, you have more authority than you know and that you were ever taught. 
God has given you the job of representing and speaking on the behalf of heaven here on earth. You have been given the assignment to do what Adam and Israel failed at. However, the same result won't happen to you. You will not fail in Christ's commission because Christ is leading the charge. God has given you the assignment to guard his church as well as guarding the people of the church. To expand his name, to push back the borders of RBC to the ends of the earth. And what is that? That means to teach everyone the knowledge of who God is. What that means is, Brother Arnold, Sister Doreen, Sister Lily, Sister Senia, Brother Mark, Melissa, Johnny, Liz, Arturo. You guys here at Reformation Bible Church in Little Bakersfield, California, have more authority than the U.S. Congress, the U.S. Supreme Court, the United Nations, the philosophy departments at Ivy League schools, the New York Times, CNN, and the President of the United States of America. Those individuals, as well as all of you, have more authority, and I would add a greater job, than all of those institutions, because you speak on the behalf of heaven. Your boss is the king of all kings, and he has given you an office. Praise God. God is so good to us. Don't you just marvel at the fact that God would choose the foolish things like you and me to shame the wise and take part in building his kingdom? Praise God for church government and praise God for the local church. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for this wonderful time. I pray that that was some encouragement for your people. I pray, Lord, that we will not abuse our power. We will not abuse the office that you have given us. Because ultimately, Lord, we are connected to you. You are the one who is ultimately in control. But Lord, have us speak on the behalf of heaven using discernment. Help us, Lord, speak on the behalf of your holy name with clarity and boldness. Lord, let us teach each other what it means to be a priest king, what it means to hold an office of the local church. Thank you, Jesus, for such a privilege. Holy Spirit, please be with us. In Christ's name, amen.